Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar, a serial novel by Chris Thompson, narrated by Chris Thompson. Chapter 5 Jurassic Park Mike replied he had been impressed by my response, noting in particular its humour. He informed me that he was inviting me to an initial assessment. He cautioned, however, that I'd scored lower in the age and looks categories, but my intelligence and wit, as well as my burgeoning public profile in the media, bumped up my score. Nowadays, if anyone sent me a message like this, I'd laugh in their face. But back then, I deputed my entire worth as a human being to outsiders. In fact, this was nothing new. When I was 15, I faked having cancer as a means of winning the approval of and respite from my school bullies. I was so stupid, this was before the internet, that I assumed cancer always looked like a lump. One Sunday night, I squished up some toilet paper into a cyst-like shape, covered it in a band-aid and stuck it to my outer thigh. Monday morning, I limped into school and revealed it dramatically to these six boys, who laughed in my face and said, Good, we hope you die. But I was undeterred. I needed them to like me. Just like in New York, I needed Mike's declaration of love. But I do have cancer and I only have a few years to live. I sobbed in the biology classroom as one of them threw water on me. The others pinned me to a desk, pulled down my trousers and ripped off my fake lump with a swift and easy tear and derisive, victorious howls. I would tell this story to Mike one day. He who wanted to guard and protect me, and I, his vulnerable charge, yearning for his nurture and aegis. I would be laying with my head on his lap, and he would be stroking my hair. We'd be on a Disney cruise, which we'd split 70-30, and he'd praise me for allowing myself to be deeply known. His biceps would be even bigger, and he'd need his cock inside me simply all the time. Each disclosure I made would send blood rushing to his penis and it would throb inside me as I divulged and divulged and divulged. I called in on Marty. He hadn't forgiven me for breaking his other foot and informed me he had no intention of doing so anytime soon. Now you'll have to cast me in your play, dear. I apologised again and made him a cup of Yorkshire tea. Marty's husband, Amir, was at home caring for his immobile spouse. This isn't helping our affair, Marty said when Amir left the room. But isn't it good you can spend more time together? Maybe fall for each other again? No, dear. Or have an open relationship, I suggested. We don't do open relationships in this house, thank you very much. And besides, he's not actually meeting any of them. I asked Marty what his goal was from having an emotional affair with his own husband on Tinder without him knowing. He looked at me like I had two heads and tapped on his empty teacup. Just brew that tea and don't trouble yourself with my goals, babes. Amir took Marty to the loo. While they were in there, something happened that caused them both to shriek so hard with laughter they fell over. I could hear them through the door struggling to breathe as they laughed. Eventually they tumbled out, howling and gasping for air. How can either of them be lonely in this relationship, I wondered. If I laughed like that with someone, I'd never leave them. A bitter twinge of grief passed through me as I remembered laughing with Lionel on Coney Island. I looked at Marty and Amir and tried to smile. Later, in the kitchen, I was washing the teacups, talking to Amir about Lionel and Robert and Mike. He said, At the end of the day, it comes down to this. Our hearts are palimpsests. Each new lover is always etched over the last, and the previous lover never completely erased. So trying to get over someone is futile. I googled palimpsest whilst he wasn't looking, and then looked at him with fresh, swooning eyes. 
How could Marty be so cavalier with their relationship? Amir would never be lonely with me. I was wondering to myself if he found me as attractive as I did him, and if somehow I'd end up pulled into this dysfunctional psychodrama with Marty, or even, in fact, if he would simply leave Marty for me and it would be quick and painless and all my problems would be solved, when his phone beeped with a familiar grinder notification. He froze. I kissed Marty goodbye and promised to come take care of him later in the week. And tell me about your date with Mike. Amir showed me out. I know you don't know me and this is a bit of an overstep. But if Marty knew, he'd be destroyed, he said. Don't worry, I said. It's none of my business. The following day, I woke up early in anticipation of my date with Mike. I had hardly slept and I couldn't eat. I paced around my room, rehearsing my go-to stories, looking at myself repeatedly in the mirror. I douched three times and reminded myself to slip in the word palimpsest and the phrase, I want to write the definitive dramatic analysis of... Of what? No clue. But I left it open so I could remain responsive to the natural flow of the conversation. Finally, I looked over his scruff profile and prepared a conversation starter on each of the topics he listed under Talk to Me About. I wore a jockstrap under my black jeans and my red Chow Bella t-shirt Lionel wore the last time I saw him. Every time my phone beeped, a feeling of sorrow and dread overwhelmed me, so convinced was I that Mike would cancel. As I walked to Prospect Park in the spring sunshine, my nose grew by two inches and my dick shrank by the same. My stomach churned. I told myself, if Mike didn't fall in love with me on the spot, I would die. It was as simple as that. I found the meeting spot and paced up and down. An older guy in his 70s was sat on the bench opposite me. He was so short his feet didn't touch the ground and he had a face like the back of an old TV set. I hated him immediately for intruding on my nervous tattoo. But soon I imagined inviting him to our wedding, guest of honour, the first person to have witnessed Chris and Mike's love. I'd been waiting 15 minutes when I was tapped on the shoulder. I turned around, but it wasn't Mike. It was the guy from the bench. I'm Mike, he said. Are you fucking kidding me? I turned away in disgust. I deserve love too, and I can still get hard. I have many useful erections in one day. All my erections are unmedicated. I stopped. My balls are low, heavy hangers and will slap hard against you. A dog walker snorted with laughter. His dog had led him into my nightmare and he had correctly guessed the backstory in an instant. He was delighted. I waited till his dog got the scent of more interesting piss, but the owner twisted and his eyes met mine as he was pulled away. Your Mike? Mike Mike? My Mike? Having had my cancer band-aid ripped off a lifetime ago, I saw no reason to repeat the humiliation with Mike. We all have our reasons for doing what we do, I figured, and I like to hear people's stories. It's one of the great joys and privileges of gay life. We meet, we fuck, but then we lay next to this man, this stranger, and he tells us his story at four in the morning in a sublet in Flatbush or in a hotel in Mayfair, a bedsit in Hackney. As the straight world sleeps, gays share their lives. A network exchange of information firing like neurons whispered across pillows from one anonymous man to another. That being said, I didn't let Mike get a word in edgeways. Revenge of thoughts, perhaps. I wanged on about my travails. Lionel, Robert, the ever more embellished motif of me collapsing by the wheelie bins, the stolen letter. There's a cruising ground up here, Mike said. Come and kiss my penis. He increased his pace and walked three steps ahead. I had to raise my voice lest he miss out on any vital parts of my story. 
The cruising ground in the Vale of Kashmir has a formal theatrical quality. Whichever way one approaches it, one is reminded of a theatre in the round with cunningly concealed entrances and fairies waiting in the wings. As we approached, the space throbbed with the magic of its own potential energy. I imagined it at dawn, my consciousness invaded by this vision. Here, in this cruising ground in Prospect Park, amidst the dense branches and obscurant fog, a man in contemporary dress walks tentatively into the mist and disappears. Now, from that same darkness emerges a man in 19th century dress. He passes a man from the 1970s and they hold each other's gaze before one of them is engulfed by the mist. We enter now, you and I. A soldier from World War II is on his knees pleasuring a hippie. A flash of buttocks, a body pushed against a tree spitting into his hand before spitting into the buttocks, eyes wincing at penetration, pain and pleasure convene on his face, furtive, atavistic glances, anonymous, grasping kisses, a breathless, erotic charge, an alloy of fear and desire. Across the ages I am seeing, on this patch of ground men have met. Outside their desire is outlawed, legislated, shamed, Inside, it is obdurate, steely, absolute. I watched Mike as he pushed through the branches in search of seclusion and saw not only him, but every man that came before him. I kissed him. I kissed a thousand men. I dropped to my knees and took Mike's penis in my mouth. Ritualistically, I turned around and let him fuck me. I heard approaching footsteps crunch in the leaves nearby, Good, I thought. I want everyone to see this man fuck me. Ancestors and descendants alike. Let them all observe this solemn rite. Let them all witness me take this man's cock. I looked up and saw Lionel. Next time on Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar. One of the dancing men grabbed me by the throat. You think I'm a dog, don't you? The police arrived and the startled onlookers screamed and pointed at me. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.